Welcome to the Columbia Church Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Bauckham, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Enjoy the message. So thank you, Jacob, for your work. And uh, you'll get to see Jacob again before this series is over because these focus groups are a big deal. We want to make sure that we take nutrition seriously. So you know, based on these focus groups, we've changed our entire CDC menu. It's uh, pizza on Mondays, hamburgers Tuesday, pizza Wednesday, hamburgers Thursday. I mean, how many of you adults would pretty much have said the same thing? Let's be honest. And you do wonder, what are these kids getting at home? What do you think? I'm going to guess pizza and hamburgers, but I'm just, just saying. So, you know, I love cheeseburgers and I, I love pizza. I, I can't eat them all, all the time, but, but I do like them. So <coughs> my question is, if you're with me, and you like a good cheeseburger, <coughs> pardon me, like this, or, or you like a good pizza like this. So what do these foods have in common? I'm just asking you to guess. Okay, cheese. Somebody said cheese. I hear that. They're tasty, right? They, they, they fit well on numerous occasions. I mean, uh, you can get them almost anywhere. They're ubiquitous. But if we're talking about pepperoni pizza, at least, or, or any pizza with any meat on it, and we're talking about a cheeseburger or any burger with any cheese on it, one of the answers is neither of these foods is kosher. That's right. If you're following the rules of kashrut, you cannot eat either of these foods. Now, I'll get into this in a moment, but it's sort of interesting. Now, clearly, I eat pizza with meat on it, and I eat cheeseburgers, so I don't follow kosher. Do you? And I'm guessing that none of you do. And I have never in my entire ministry preached a sermon on kosher. I've preached on Leviticus, and I've preached on Deuteronomy, and I've preached on all the passages of Exodus, but I've never gotten around to talking about the food regulations or the food laws, the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. And as I approached this particular series, I recognized a couple of things. One of them is that food is mentioned 1,207 times in the Bible, not even including all the allusions for which food is applied or to which food is applied. That's a lot of talk about food. And not surprising because, let's face it, eating is a big part of our lives. When I looked at the Old Testament, I could find scriptures like this in Psalm 34, 8. This is the theme scripture of our sermon series, Taste and See that the Lord is tov or the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. The Lord is goodness. He is beautiful. He is bountiful. He is sweet. I also could look at Genesis as I did in the first week of this series, and I could see that when God finished the puzzle of creation, remember, he said it is very tov. It is very good, by which he meant I have designed it in such a way that it works the way I want it to, And a big piece of that design that I started thinking about and never had thought about before is that God created me not only with an appetite for food, but with an absolute need for food. I have to have food and drink in order to survive. Thus, God made me with a continual everyday need. And then what did he do? Well, he told me in Genesis that he then met that need by creating things that were suitable for me to eat. This virtuous cycle of dependence 
is the entirety of this sermon series. And for that reason, before I move along to kosher, let me park there for a second because one thing that did surprise me after the first sermon, not sure what Chris heard after last week, but I was surprised by how many people emailed me or spoke with me about their difficulty with the idea of dependence. They don't like the word. They said, can you use a different one? Uh, Well, it's in the Bible. I mean, there is a word in Hebrew and there's a word in Greek, multiple words actually, that that can't really be translated any other way than dependence on, on God. Of course, submission is there, but that's because of dependence. And, and of course, allegiance is there, worship and praise, but that's all because we are dependent on God. But I asked a couple of them, help me understand your struggle with the word dependence. They couldn't quite put their finger on it, at least two of them, but one of them said to me, one of my favorite Colombians who's very thoughtful, said, I guess to be honest, in our culture, we struggle with the idea or the notion of dependence and like to think of ourselves as created by God to be independent. I get that. In fact, I suppose when I hear the word dependence used in our day and our time, it's usually with a negative connotation, wouldn't you say? Co-dependence. Alcohol and drug dependence. We talk about dependence as a negative thing, and we're taught to be, in fact, quite independent. But in reality, we're not. We are interdependent. And in reality, human nature is that we become dependent on all sorts of things. So the secret to understanding God's virtuous cycle of dependence is that if we are dependent on God, then we need be dependent on nothing else. All good things come from Him. Everything that is healthy for us, everything that is nutritious for us, everything that is truly good for us or tow for us is given by God for our benefit and for His glory, thus establishing this virtuous cycle of dependence that reverses the vicious cycle of dependence that we see in our society. When we're dependent on God, we don't have to worry about things quite so much, which is precisely what Jesus taught us. Don't worry about what you'll wear or what you'll eat. Your heavenly Father knows you need these things. He's already taking care of them. But then we run into these food laws. It's funny how you can run into them. One thing I do is to read the Bible through every year. I have done it a number of ways. I've read it backward. I've read it forward. I usually use a plan that has me in different parts of the Bible every day. That helps a lot because a lot of people who tell me that they try to read the Bible through will come to me and say, I got stuck. And I'll say, where did you get stuck? And there are a number of possible answers. The book of Numbers comes up a lot, but none more often than the book of Leviticus. They drown in the minutiae. They don't like to bathe in the law. They get confused by it all. They get stuck in the middle of that book. And most of the food restrictions are found in Leviticus, some in Deuteronomy, a couple in Exodus. And the question becomes, what are we to make of the Old Testament food laws? In fact, I I kind of started wondering, why have I never preached on this before? I mean, it's it's all over the place. It's, It's in the Old and the New Testament. It certainly is there in the New Testament as a stricture, 
as a regulation of the lives of the Jewish people, God's people. But, but then there it is all over the New Testament, and I guess I sort of have preached it in this way, as a dividing line between the Jews and the Gentiles, the early church struggling to figure out what to do with these rules and regulations that have been so important to their lives to this point because all of the earliest Christians were Jews first before they became followers of Jesus. They were Messianic Jews. What are we to make of these food laws? Well, the book of Lamentations itself, or the book of Leviticus itself, rather, helps us a lot with this. Because if you will plow through these various rules, you'll eventually get to Scriptures that describe in God's own words their purpose. I'm going to tell you about the rules rather than read the whole book to you. You'll be grateful for that. But I do want to read this part of Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44a and 45 through 47. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Now, just in case you didn't hear it the first time, he just repeats himself. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy. Why? Because I, God says, am holy. These, therefore, are the regulations concerning animals, birds, every living thing that moves about in the water, and every creature that moves along the ground. The most distinguished between, you must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. So the purpose of the law then, in this case, the purpose of these regulations is that people might make an effort at being holy as God is holy. Now, as I'll discuss in a moment, we've abandoned these laws because we were told that we could, because God's Word, the Word of God given in the New Testament tells us that the freedom of Christ breaks us of a need for the guardian of this laws. I'll come to in a moment. Nonetheless, I'm pretty sure that God doesn't change God's mind. I'm relatively certain that if God had a purpose for this, that the purpose remains. I'm pretty certain, aren't you, that if the letter of the law is no longer necessary, the spirit of the law still is. That whatever God's intention was for His people, Old Testament, that was still His intention for His people, New Testament. It's still His intention for us today. So how do we honor the spirit of this law? How do we understand the intent of this law? Well, before we get there, let's take a look at the law because it's kind of interesting. So we've got these rules that show up in Deuteronomy and uh, Leviticus primarily, and, and they say essentially this. I'm simplifying here, but this is the essence of it. Land animals, you know, cows, pigs, things like that, they must have split hooves and they must chew their cud. They must eat grass, meaning that actually pigs are out. So if you're going to follow kosher, no bacon. And some of you immediately will say, what is the point of life without bacon? I understand. So there you go. Land animals, split hooves, eat grass. Second, seafood must have scales and fins. 
This is terrible news for me if I need to follow the food laws. First of all, I dearly love oysters. I can divide this whole crowd on that food group. I can tell you right now, mollusks. If you like oysters, let me see your hand. And if you don't, let me see yours. That's good. Leave more for us. They're so delicious, so very good, and yet not edible according to the rules of the Old Testament, because all of my seafood must have scales and fins. Here's even worse group uh, news for any of you who live in this part of the country, and especially for you Marylanders. What's out here? Crabs. You must be kidding. How, how could crabs possibly be a bad thing? Anyway, there you go. No crab cakes for you. They're out. No birds of prey. This one I don't find that difficult. I never have had a craving for a bald eagle. But anyway, it's up to you as to how that is difficult or not. Next, no ground crawlers or insects. No creatures that squirm along the ground. This is bad news for you if you're from Florida and you like cooter. If you don't know what cooter is, look it up. Or you like alligator. Or you like lots of things. Have you ever eaten a snake? Well, I have. Pretty good, yeah? Tastes like chicken. Well, you can't eat them according to this. And you can't eat insects. I don't know what you do with the ones you eat by accident at the picnic, you know, but this is the ones on purpose. And then really bad news, no meat and dairy together. In fact, in the most legalistic of Jewish environments, the eating of one must be separated by nine hours from the eating of the other. Therefore, no such thing as a cheeseburger and no such thing as a pepperoni pizza for lots of reasons, not just that one. We got a, we got a lot of issues here relative to our eating, I'm guessing. Are there any of you that don't break any of these laws? Now, it doesn't stop there either. Food that is permitted is called kashrut or kosher. And food that is not allowed is called trife, which has a deeper meaning now, by the way. And food that can be consumed with meat is called perev, and everything else is just not kosher. And all meats that you eat must be specially prepared. The blood must be drained out of them before they are done anything else with. When they're slaughtered, the blood is drained first. And this has everything to do with the teaching of the Bible, the blood of Jesus, all sorts of things that you see here that you miss unless you understand these laws. This is pretty elaborate. Now, unlike what most people think, this food does not have to be blessed by a rabbi. So if you go to a kosher deli, it simply means that the food has been prepared according to kosher rules, that the person who's prepared it is licensed, and therefore, believe it or not, they're actually exempt from some codes of the U.S. law because, first of all, the practice of religion, but secondly, it is actually true that following some of these practices make the meat less likely to spoil, safer to use, and that's intriguing. What are the reasons for these? I guess we could ask, first of all, is there a practical reason? And a lot of modern scholars have tried to argue that there is. There are two basic arguments here, and there's actually even a third. Now, the two basic ones, the first one has to do with health. The first argument is, and I had a professor in college who made this argument, These are actually nothing but ancient health practices or ancient health codes. They're ways of eating safely, keeping food from spoiling. And that makes a lot of sense for a couple of the rules. The problem is it does not anywhere come close to explaining 
all the rules. A more modern argument, kind of interesting, is that these are environmental stipulations, ways God gave us to care for the earth. So, for example, did you know that a pig above all other animals, a hog above all other animals, in order to become edible, consumes more resources than anything else just about that we know of? It is an incredibly resource-intensive process to make a pig edible for you. That's why your North Carolina barbecue takes a lot of work from those North Carolina pig farmers. And that explains a couple of the codes, but nowhere near all of them. There's a third argument that's kind of interesting. One modern scholar said this has to do with with propriety. It has to do with what a thing is useful for. It has to do with work and the value of work. So the things that cannot be eaten are the things that are valuable because they produce work. So for example, you cannot eat, according to the strictures of the Old Testament, a camel, but you can't eat a cow. Well, camels are useful work animals. And that explains a couple of the codes, but no, nowhere near all of them. In fact, nobody has been able to explain a few of them. Is there any good reason why dairy and meat can't be consumed together? Well, no, it can cause some intestinal discomfort, but your body can't handle it. Some of these just have no good rule. Now, what I suggested to you, first of all, is that all of you follow some kind of rules about eating. It's a matter of whether they're your rules or someone else's and the reasons why you, you follow them. So, uh, a good many of you, for example, have been on a diet at some point, I'm guessing. And, and some of you have told me you've had pretty good luck with a couple of these, like the keto diet. Now, a lot of you have been on keto, which is, you know, just avoiding sugars of any sort, any refined or processed thing like that. And it does seem to help if you need to lose a few pounds. I've never been on the keto diet, but, but it's been commended to me a couple of times by you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> and other people say they're on another kind of diet, like what we may call the, the caveman diet or something like that. You know, you just eat a lot of meat and stuff, I think. I don't know how it works. I don't know what cavemen eat. I wasn't here. But anyway, you got a rule. Other people have other rules. I'll give you a couple, okay? Butch King does not eat vegetables. Just so, just so you know. This is true. He will say, now wait a second, he's going he's gonna to complain from wherever he is right now. He's going to say, A, I eat salad if it has dressing on it. I've, seen, I've, I've witnessed this. He will eat a salad. That's true. And he says, B, I eat green beans, to which you will tell him, Butch, a green bean is not a vegetable. It's a legume. Anyway, true. Haven't preached Butch's funeral yet, so things seem to be working out so far. Chris Clifford will not eat anything that swims. In other words, he will not eat seafood. Fasting or not, he will not eat seafood. And you've got a rule or two. There's something you will or will not eat. There's a reason you will or will not eat it. There's some code that you follow, whether it's your own personal stricture or something that's been placed upon you. But Those may have various and sundry purposes that may have nothing to do with following God, although dieting can be, I guess, a way to remedy the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's always an argument to make. You can't usually say, the reason I won't eat seafood is because I'm trying to honor God, or the reason I won't eat vegetables is because I'm trying to honor God, or the reason I follow a keto diet is I'm trying to honor God. There's some health reason for it. And when we get to these food laws... 
we come up to a different answer. In fact, most prominent Jewish scholars say that the Hebrew food laws are what they call chakim. And chakim means that there is no rational or clear reason for the stricture or the law, except that it is offered as a way to honor God. If you ask a faithful Jew, why do you practice kosher? You might think it's a little weird. Why do you practice this? They'll say one thing and one thing only, because the Torah says so, because God offered it to me, because I receive it as a gift. I asked a Jewish friend of mine about this several weeks ago because I wanted to know, what is your answer? And this is the answer my Jewish friend gave to me. And I I asked him, can you commend to me a book that would help me understand this? And he said, well, because you've never really done anything with kosher, I'm going to commend to you a book that is used as we teach children how to be good Jews, how to be good, faithful Jews. And this book that we use is called To Be a Jew, which is rather interesting, by the way, in more ways than just this, and it's an easy read. It's written by a man named Rabbi Chaim Halevi Donan, and he writes that food laws are given by God in order to call his people to an opportunity of holiness in his name, to call his people to be holy. That's pretty cool. But more significantly in the book, Donan insists that Jewish dietary regulations make eating a sacred ritual as God intended for it to be. Now, listen to this again. These food laws, according to Donan, they make eating, everyday eating, a sacred ritual, which Donan suggests is the way God intended it to be. And that makes me jealous in a way because Wouldn't this be an awesome component of my whole life discipleship? I mean, I'm always looking for a way to take the secular and make it sacred, to make the profane beautiful, to to put something into God's parlance, holiness, worship of Him. How am I to do that if I do not intend to follow these food laws? And I don't. Well, when Debbie and I got married, you know, I was pretty easily convinced to fall into a pattern that was a little unhealthy. We lived in a couple of room place on a seminary campus and we caught food as caught can because Debbie worked a pretty hard job at that time and worked late hours. And I worked a couple of jobs, pastored a little church and managed a software store and I was going to class all the time. And we were taking turns cooking and, and doing whatever you had to do just to get a meal. And we were, we were coming in last minute and sometimes we were grabbing. And, and so my tendency was just to sit in front of the television, which we did have at that time. And and eat in front of the TV. And Debbie said, this very early in our marriage, we're not going to do that. I said, really? He said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to eat in front of the TV. Now, there are exceptions, you know, World Series, Super Bowl, things like that. <laughs> Generally speaking, no. Well, what are we going to do? We're going to sit at the table like civilized human beings. We're going to use real plates and real silverware and real napkins, and we're going to light a candle at the table. Really? Over time, I came to understand it. This was true when it was just the two of us. This was true when children were introduced to our home. No matter what it took 
for the evening meal to be sacred, that's what we did. If they got home from sports practice, which they did between 8 and 8.30, then we ate dinner at 8.30. We lit a candle. We prayed. We sat like decent, civilized human beings, and we ate. But what I came to recognize over time, and what I still recognize because we still do that, our kids are out, and we can eat anywhere we want to eat. We need in front of the TV. We can eat in bed if we want to. The kids are gone. But we still sit at the table. We light a candle. We pray. And we eat. And what she did so craftily was to make the common dinner table of our home sacred space. And I'm suggesting you could do that if you live singly. It doesn't matter who else is there but God. It is a conscious way to make a profane common experience sacred in every way. And here's what happens. You're going to eat every day unless you're fasting. You're going to eat most of the time. And when you manage to make make that simple task of eating and drinking sacred, it reminds you to make all other parts of your life sacred as well. Eating so regular. We do it at the same time every day, sometimes three times a day. So why would a faithful person practice the laws of kosher? For that reason, to make eating sacred, because the Torah offers it as much. So why not? And the answer, but it's complex. Why not practice kosher? Because you and I followers of Jesus, we are free in Christ. It's really that simple, and it's really that difficult. Paul explains this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. He says, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian, I get this language, The law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian. Interesting. I don't know how many of you have raised kids in any way, shape, or form or reared them, if we speak correctly. My grandmother would correct me for saying raised, but I raised mine. And when you raise your kids, you walk through a a process You know, when they're little, they're totally dependent on you. And what you do is to to set guardrails that you call rules. And at some point, when your children are little, at some point, they ask you, Mommy or Daddy, why do I have to do this? And the answer is simple, because I said so. And that works until it doesn't. And one day there is a rude awakening when that does not work. And you say, because I said so, and your kid says, so? What difference does that make? Give me a reason for this rule. And the next thing that you become is something of a guide. So you move from being the guardian to the guide. And I start to to teach you how to do it yourself and and how to be an interdependent human being, a person dependent on God. And I I model the way for you. And I, I do still have some rules, but those rules change, don't they? They get loosened to some extent. They get shifted to some extent. 
And then your child or your children, they go through those teenage years where you're a guide. And then if you live long enough, and I guess we have, they become adults with their own homes. And then you are no longer a guardian and you are no longer a guide. Debbie likes to say, we are now advisors. And then she always asks our our ads after that. We are advisors when they ask for advice. Right? Because if it's offered when they don't ask for it, it's not often well received. And as you move through this, essentially what you're saying is you don't need a guardian anymore, and if you do, we're in trouble. Even the the law shouldn't need to be your guardian anymore. You're a decent human being because you've learned to be a decent human being, because you care for others, because you love. That's why. And now it should be possible for you to carry on these habits without the need of so much rule and regulation so that you might model these ways for your children as well. And one generation teaches another that teaches another that teaches another. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying you're no longer babies that drink milk. You've become meat-eating adults, and you don't need these laws anymore. But the reason you do not need them, Paul would say, is because the laws aren't necessary for you to fulfill their spirit, their intent. So in the book of Acts, we find this amazing story. You remember the story, right? Peter is at the home of a a man. I can teach it another time in a, a more extensive way, but it has to do with a Jew being in the home of Gentile. And so he's there, and And he's struggling. Peter is struggling because they have followed these laws their whole life, and they've been incredibly important, and now they're confronting these people Paul and others are bringing into the church, these Gentiles who who don't share their Jewish background with them and don't see the food laws as significant and important all. And this is splitting the church. It's dividing the church. There is a Peter group and there's a Paul group, and they, they are at odds with one another. This is a lot of the story of Acts about the Judaizers versus the freedom people, Paul the freedom person. And so, Peter enters this home, and this happens to him. At noon, the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the rooftop of this home to pray. And he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, so I imagine he could smell it, right? While the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance, and he saw heaven opened in something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners, and it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Now, remember the rules of kosher when you hear that. Four-footed animals, reptiles, and birds. And then a voice told him, I want you to pay special attention to this because I'm going to come back. A voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. And as you probably know, Peter completely changed his mind about what really mattered when it came to following Jesus. Let me back up to that line for a second, kill and eat. It's one of the reasons that eating has become so superficial in our culture today. It's such a huge part of the culture that it's almost like worship, isn't it? The preparation of food and the eating of food and 
all the temples with the golden arches and the like that are all around us. And yet, in this society where food is so prevalent, have we lost consciousness of the circle that God has created of life, which is the circle of dependence that sustains us? And is that part of the reason this isn't sacred anymore? I'm not sure where all of you come from. Some of you I know. But where I went to school, the first day of hunting season was a holiday. It may as well be because nobody was there who was male. Everybody skipped to go hunting. And everybody had a complete awareness of what it meant to take and consume life, what that looked like. But it strikes me that we may have lost our connection to the earth in this way that God created for Tove or for good. It strikes me that we don't get quite the same feeling when we walk into a grocery store or Costco or whatever and we pull out this neatly cellophane wrapper of meat. And when we pray at our house, I don't know about you, but we just say thanks in general for the food. I, I don't know that we have ever said, Father, Thank you for the cow that gave its life that I might be nourished. Let's make it a cheeseburger because now there's dairy on it. Thank you for the cow that gave its milk that I might be nourished. Or when is the last time you ate anything that came from a plant and recognized that in most cases, not all, but in many cases, the plant has to be destroyed in order for you to be nourished. So it is with any grain the plant's destroyed. It has to be replanted. Something is killed in order for you to eat. Think about that. In God's design of the world, something else must give its life in order for me to sustain my life on earth. And that gives me a whole new understanding, doesn't it, of how Jesus, the Son of God, came and gave His life and spilled His blood so that I could be forgiven and then was resurrected so that I could be redeemed forever, so that I could live eternally. Something must die in order for me to live. And when I recognize that death must occur in order for life to be sustained, something comes to mind that is far more sacred than just plopping it on the table and eating it up. In fact, the more prepared and the more processed our foods become, the more we start to think they come from a factory instead of the hand of God. This is a mistake the farmers I pastored never made. It's a mistake those who raised hogs and cows that I pastored at another era never made. They knew that something had to die in order for them to live. And therefore, it was sacred because something had given its life in order for them to be sustained. Could we acknowledge the hand of God more carefully? I'm going to suggest that we might start doing as much. I had a nice piece of meat last night. What was to stop us from saying, Father, thank you for creating the life of the animal that gave its life in order for me to be nourished for the goodness of your plan, the goodness of your earth. God told Peter, kill and eat. And Peter understood the sacredness of that. Nothing I've made, God said, 
is unclean if used according to the purpose for which I've created it. So we are instructed to eat with intent. See, it's in the New Testament too. The Apostle Paul actually is speaking about eating and food here when he says to the church at Corinth, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what does it say? Read it with me. Do it all to the glory of God. Isn't it fascinating? I bet I've preached this Scripture to you a hundred times. I've used it in the context of faith and work. I've used it in the context of raising children. I've used it in the context of marriage. I've used it in the context of just about everything except the one thing that Paul is actually talking about here, which is eating and drinking. This whole chapter of Scripture is about how to regard food. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. I think that eating possibly becomes a marker in our lives every single day, sometimes up to three times a day. For some of you, much more than that. The evening snack or whatever also. The afternoon Snickers bar, whatever it is you do. Every one of those times becomes an opportunity to make life sacred because we acknowledge this virtuous cycle of dependence into which God has placed us. And we say, thank you, Lord, I am fully dependent on you. And I'm dependent not only while I consume this food and drink, but as I burn the energy that it gives to me. It's all about this sacredness, I think. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul says, again, speaking about food, well, look it up. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. What Paul seems to be teaching me here, what the New Testament seems to teach me, is that the letter of the law that was my guardian before I became mature, was our guardian before we became mature, is replaced by the spirit of the law, and that is the law of love. Love doesn't constrain me. It compels me to do that which honors and glorifies God. Therefore, I need to be looking for opportunities in my life to be compelled by the love of Christ to make sacred that which has become for me standard or profane. That's the task of whole life discipleship. So using things as God has designed them to be used glorifies Him. A few years ago when our children were little, they used to make things for us all the time. I kind of miss this, you know, the innocence uh, of a little child who just thinks the simplest thing will make you happy. And you know what? I'm going to tell you something. It does. So they bring you that piece of paper that you can't figure out what is, what is that. You don't know. You just say, oh, that's wonderful. It's magnificent. The refrigerator gets full of these papers unless you live in my house, in which case they get thrown away by somebody in my house eventually. They bring you these little things and so... One time, one of my daughters brought me a rock. It was just a rock. That's all it was. It did have a, some magic marker stuff on it, something drawn on there. I can't remember what. And presented this rock to me as a, a magnificent gift. And I 
did what any dad would do and go, oh, that's great. That's That's incredible. It's amazing. And I put that rock off to the side. And one evening, I'll never forget this. It was just a little thing, but I'll never forget it. There was this little nail that was sticking out of the counter on the corner of something, and I just looked around for something that would work, and and I saw the rock, and I picked up the rock, and I just tapped in that little nail and stuck it back. And my daughter said to me, Daddy, what are you doing? I said, well, there was a nail sticking out here, and I just tapped it back in. And she said, but you used the rock I gave you. Yeah. Look, didn't hurt it at all. Multi-useful. But Daddy, that, that's art. I gave that to you to tell you that I loved you. And essentially, without saying it, you misused it. You took that which was sacred to me, and you made it profane. You used it for a common little everyday nothing thing. And I think that God often looks at us consuming all the good that he's given to us, and in our culture, consuming it in massive quantities, amazing abundance. And do you know how often God might say to us, you've taken what I regard as art, as beauty, as goodness, and it has become for you profane. That can be true of many things, whether it's your sexuality or your job or your food or your parenting, or whatever else. It is not acceptable that anything God has made for good become for us anything but sacred. Discipleship is about recovering that sacred intent and that sacred space. So food cannot become for us just another idol. The Apostle Paul, of course, famously says in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. And when he says that, he gives this massive, just multi-applicable definition to what an idol is. An idol is anything that we worship instead of the creator. We look at the created, and all you have to do, go right now if you want to. Watch all the food networks. Go right now if you want to. Pay attention to what's in the advertisements that you look at. I I noticed the other night, I said to Debbie, I don't think this game could be broadcast as a baseball game where they're not such a thing as a chicken sandwich. How many more chicken sandwiches can we possibly invent? How many more? It becomes an end in itself. It becomes a God of sort. Paul actually acknowledges this in his day and time when he writes to the church at Philippi. And it's intriguing. I've never applied this to food, but it's the one thing he's actually talking about. He's talking about other things too. He's talking about sexual desire. He's talking about lots of bodily functions. But he is talking about food. Go look at it. He says, for as I have often told you before, and now tell you again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. That sounds severe. What does it take to become an enemy of the cross of Christ? It's this simple. Their destiny is destruction because their God is their what? Why does this analogy work? Their enemy is destruction because their God is their stomach. They are driven by their appetites. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. 
And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control. See the cycle of dependence here? Everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. So we're free. But Christ's love compels us, among other things, to eat with intent, with sacred intention to consume what God has given for us. Now, I tried to think of a number of ways we could do this because sometimes people will tell, okay, how do I apply this? I bet you can come up with 10 more, but these are the first ones I thought about. First of all, we can give thanks to God. Light a candle. Speak your gratitude. Speak it specifically. I'm going to try this week, and I, I will admit to you I've never done this before. But my prayer experiment this week is going to be in my gratitude to trace back the thing I am consuming or using to the hand of God. Thank you, Lord, for the grains that come from the plant that gave its life, from the field of the farmer who planted it and nurtured it, who fertilized it and watered it, and who harvested it and sent it to the company where it was produced into bread, on and on, until I get to the hand of God. So first of all, we can be grateful, but gratitude in itself is cheap if it is not attached to dependence on God. So secondly, we can eat to live rather than live to eat. Here's a hard one for me. How about you? And I grew up, where I, even our house sometime, where I grew up, you start talking about the next meal at the one you're sitting at as though what's before you is not good enough. So eat to live rather than live to eat. Thirdly, welcome God and others to the sacred space of your table. Do it often and do it with intent. Fourth, abstain from food at times. Chris dealt with this well. Fasting ties us back to our dependence on God and allows us to pray more deeply. And finally, ensure that others have something to eat too. Now, this one's going to help some of you because after the first sermon, some people who struggled with what I was saying said, but what about people who have no food? What about our brothers and sisters in parts of Haiti where we've worked or in other parts of the world? What about people at our own back door who come to our food pantry every week? And the person who said that to me, I said, exactly. And she goes, what? I said, they come to our food pantry every week. You need to know this, at least right now, this could change as the environment changes, but for right now, there is enough food on the earth to feed every man, woman, and child. In fact, the United States of America, we throw more food away than it would take to feed most third world nations. That's shame. That's profane. That is not sacred. What would it mean if we took seriously sharing what God has given to us in such a way that we become the hands of providence to others so that they know that God loves them and will take care of their needs? This is what Spend Yourself is all about. If you want to know the answer to this, how can you make eating sacred? Here's one way. Hold out your hands, all of you right now. Hold out your hands. There they are. When we use what God has given us to care for others and we share God's love in that way, we are making 
food sacred. We are making eating a sacred thing. God created us to be dependent on and grateful for His provision. He has placed us in a virtuous cycle of dependence. And until we find everything we do along that cycle, we have not yet finished the task of being whole life disciples because our greatest need, no matter how much food or drink we have, no matter how much air there is to breathe, no matter how much of whatever is available, our greatest need, what we were created to do, is to love and be loved by God. And the virtuous cycle of dependence is meant to turn us back to that love every single time because it is what will sustain us eternally. So I'm thinking with a lot of intent, maybe you are too, things I take for granted, things that have become common for me. How can I make them more sacred? How can I acknowledge God's presence in the good? How can I taste and see more often that God is good? And if I stepped into your house this evening or some other, and you happened to be at your table eating, could I tell that your house is a place that has become sacred space for the presence and the work of God? You know, it's this hard and it's this easy. When I am free, that is when I am most responsible for deciding how God will be honored in all that I do, even in eating and drinking. So, Father, we thank You for all the good things that come from Your hand through the plants and the animals of the earth to our bellies that sustain us while we live in this earth. And as we give You thanks, we acknowledge the sacredness the reality as you created it that something must give its life in order for us to live and therefore it is precious. We thank you that all things are good and we beg your forgiveness when we misuse those good things and make them profane tools in the hands of Satan. And we pray, Lord, for your purification of our homes, our hearts, and our hands as we seek to serve you in all things that we do. And Lord, we pray that as you provide for us and we become dependent on you, we will recognize that you will take care of our basic needs. And as we do, we will remember that you sent your son Jesus to give his life in order that we might live, not just now, but as citizens of heaven forever. Thank you, Lord, for all that is good. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to ColumbiaBaptist.org. That's ColumbiaBaptist.org. 